Welcome back to the Replatform podcast. It's myself, James Gerd, and I'm joined by my co-host, Paul Rogers. Good, well, it's good morning to you, isn't it? Not afternoon, because you're over in the US. It is, yeah. I'm um, struggling to uh, deal with the consequences of Thanksgiving at the moment, which is why I'm recording from my hotel room and struggling with Wi-Fi as well, which is why my camera's up. Yeah, getting through it. Excellent. Paul, Paul's too embarrassed to show his face on today's episode, everybody. Um, <laughs> so for, the, for, for regular listeners, thanks as always for tuning back in. We really appreciate it. If you're new to the podcast, great to have you on board. We hope we don't scar you uh, emotionally with this first episode. And please do become a subscriber because you get alerts for all the next uh, really cool episodes coming up. We've got a, a, a more interesting guests uh, today. So let me just set up the episode and we'll introduce you to them. So we're talking about supplier enablement for things like dropship and marketplace commerce. So really interesting kind of niche area of e-commerce. And I'll let our guests explain better what that really means. But we're going to be talking about, you know, what it is, what they've learned from the implementations they've done so far, some of the business challenges, um, you know, the the history behind it, where the business case will be going forward for this, etc. So some really interesting nuggets in this area. So let me introduce first to Roger and Chris. How are you both doing, gents? Doing well. Thanks, James. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, and happy Thanksgiving. Yes, thank you. Uh, we are uh, based in Canada, so we had our Thanksgiving uh, about a month ago, but oh, uh, we have lots of folks in the United States who are enjoying a long weekend right now. That's good. My ge- geography is really screwed up. So I thought you were based in the US as well. So that's my first era today. Brilliant. Um, we, so let, we have let, people let, in seven states and four provinces, so we're kind of all over. Yeah, all over, the, like most modern businesses. Um Great. So what would be great if you could both introduce yourselves um, and Conviction. Like, what is Conviction? What, what does it do? Um, and also, what are your roles within the business? Sure. So I'm Roger. Uh, I would describe myself as the technical co-founder, so product and design. And uh, I, would re- I would describe Convictional as basically reducing barriers to B2B trade, um, which has two sides, the software and also enablement. And enablement usually takes the form of like content to help people learn and understand how their role might change or how they might have to change how they measure themselves. So both of those things put together is what we call supplier enablement, but the goal is reduce barriers to BB trade. And my name is Chris Grushi, and I'm the non-technical co-founder and CEO, COO of Convictional. Uh, and so what that looks like on a day-to-day basis is working with our customers and uh, folks in our pipeline, trying to get them to adopt and use Convictional's platform and all we have to offer. Great. Um, I must say that microphone is very good. Your audio is like perfect. Um, That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> So far more professional than me and James. Um, so I'll ask the first question. So Convictional um, obviously does a few different things. Uh, what, are the bigger, what are the biggest problems you're looking to solve for merchants? I'd say the biggest problem we set out to solve was onboarding time of suppliers, regardless of the way that you use those products once you get them. So a lot of the customers that we work with are retailers or online marketplaces. And in both cases, they had the same problem, which was the technology available to onboard suppliers took too long to onboard suppliers. So one way to look at that is the number of suppliers you can onboard per person on this on that team was too low to really accomplish the goals that they had. And so we set up to build this kind of software that would allow you to do that more quickly. And then as we've not necessarily you know fully succeeded in that, but succeeded to a level um, where 
we've kind of solved that as being the bottleneck to supplier onboarding. And so it's revealed some other problems and those are kind of the problems that we're working on now. Great. And then um, we talked before we started recording, you were mentioning that your customer is slightly broader than some of the other players in the market. Um, what does your average customer look like at the moment? And how do you see that changing as convictional growth? Yeah, we work with customers of all shapes and sizes. Um, and we've been historically very focused on retail as a vertical, but the challenges of supplier enablement that Roger mentioned are agnostic to whatever vertical uh, is responsible for distributing physical products in the economy. So you could have a dental supply distributor aggregating products from long tail suppliers. You could have, uh, you know, a healthcare or pet supply company. And so we basically look at, you know, all of the participants responsible for B2B trade, and they all um, historically have struggled with onboarding suppliers, integrating them and transacting with them. Uh, but specifically to retail, to answer your question, we basically have two primary customer segments. Uh, one is what we call growth, and these would be you know, high growth, uh, early stage businesses, typically using a platform like Shopify, Shopify Plus, although we're, we're sort of agnostic to e-commerce platforms in general. Um, and those companies are typically looking to expand their assortment online with less inventory risk. And then our second customer segment is enterprise. And so we work with some really large multi-billion dollar retailers and distributors who, again, face some of these challenges but have a mandate to quote unquote digitally transform themselves. And so now they're looking for re, you know basically areas to do that successfully. And one of those areas is assortment expansion online. So how can I sell more products again with less inventory risk, but then also this deeper insight of how do I give the suppliers that who are going to be fulfilling those products a great experience working with me? I don't have a business if I don't have suppliers. And so we work we do a lot of work across the board again with retailers of all shapes and sizes to help them understand the challenges that so supplier enablement solves and the business model opportunities that that unlocks and marketplace is just one example it could also be dropship or wholesale well I, I, of course i worked uh, i've worked with a few dropship companies where they have the e-commerce but they don't um, fulfill it's all through third-party suppliers and yeah the, the key thing that i learned through the first project worked on was how much mess product data is in and how difficult that is uh, for one or two people in a team to clean and tidy it and get it without the website looking like somebody's basically just dumped all over it and put crap in which obviously kills us i'd love to know um like where where convictional fits within that space of helping with that onboarding process for data so what we did was basically build our own version of a product model and that product model is flexible enough that the buyer, so the retailer, the online marketplace can define certain product attributes that they want per product category. So you can say for this category of sunglasses, it needs to have these attributes. And that requirement flows back to the suppliers. In terms of what we help the suppliers do, um, they usually don't have everything that's needed in order to activate with their customer. So it's a matter of pulling what they have already as easily as possible from where it might already exist. And we connect to a ton of different e-commerce platforms on that side. So you install the app, we pull what we can of product information. Essentially our software will then tell you the gap between what you have and what you need for that particular channel and make it easy to supplement that information directly through us or even back into your platform. A few examples of that is like barcodes or images with certain sizing. 
So if you attach them in the platform, it'll flow right through, meet the requirement of the customer. If not, you can attach them in our in our side and do it there as well. So it's it's kind of like combining the way that PIM systems have traditionally been used with what you're describing about dropship data onboarding, where it connects to whatever system they have today. We've actually, we've done that with CSV feeds as well. So first for what we call classic companies, companies that historically have had like on-premise ERP systems, that tends to be their preferred way to do it. So you can send whatever you're able to export from that system. And then there's a UI for basically mapping that again into our standard format, identify what's missing and resolving it. So all those workflows um, we had to build, but that's what it, that's the way it works in the current picture. And it, it does, the data we have suggests that depending on how you're doing it in your current environment, it's generally about five times faster um, if you're using some combination of like spreadsheets uh, and APIs or EDI. So it's significantly faster. And I know, I know that the business is fast growing and you've obviously got um, experience of working across different types of business and different industry. Love to know, apart from that product day thing, what else have you learned from the implementations? Like what are the, the key use cases where it's really winning for clients? That's a good question. We've learned a great deal. I would say our learning started even before Convictional. So I've held roles that were both on the e-com management side and on the manufacturing side of those transactions. And there's a lot of really good reasons why it's hard to participate in these programs to begin with. And so in terms of implementations at Convictional, what we've learned, I think we've learned the most key lesson is that the integrations are really hard and people struggle with it. Often they'll build something that ends up being really hard to maintain. Once they get into our environment, it seems like the integration problem becomes less of a focus point because it ends up being faster than other processes that exist in their business. So for example, in enterprise customers that we have, you know, their current onboarding process might take three months. For us, it might have a median of like a week or two. And in doing that, it reveals that their legal onboarding actually takes longer than a week or two. So the bottleneck to getting new brands activated is actually just signing the paperwork that gets sent along with the invitation to join the program. And that's not something that we really expected. In terms of like key factors that result in success, it definitely is important to have a champion that's bought in and measured in the right way, but also all the teams that touch the project have to be measured in the right way. And ideally at least one person, if not two to three people are focused exclusively on activating sellers through that channel. Um, if you have that critical mass of people activating sellers and you're measuring that the efforts of those people and the teams around them the right way, those projects seem to quite consistently go well. Cool. And I guess a question for you, Chris, actually, from a commercial and positioning point of view, because terminology is a beautiful thing in our industry. There's a lot to it. And supplier enablement is it's a, it's a relatively new software category. Um, and some of this terminology might be a bit new to people who are pure from the e-commerce side. I'd love you to, to just explain to people, how does supplier enablement technology differ to like you know things like you know drop ships out there, marketplaces? You know, some, you know, uh, something like Miracle, for example, as a marketplace will have some setup flows in it for onboarding. So where 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 do the where do the boundaries like begin and end? Yeah, I would say supplier enablement is agnostic to the business model that the retailer or distributor wants to adopt. And so um, the boundaries are effectively in sort of the commercial onboarding phase where, you know, you can actually sort of through convictional 
and a feature that we have called the actions create almost like a custom onboarding step for your uh, suppliers, which could include things like getting them to sign your legal agreement, sharing marketing uh, materials, um, all the way to integrating via API, platform connector, EDI, SFTP, you, you name it. Um, to then the ongoing operations and management of those suppliers and then the automating the ongoing transactions as well. So sort of the, the start and end is basically from we facilitate the initial handshake uh, all the way to, you know, a relationship where perhaps a retailer starts with wholesale or sorry, starts with marketplace where, you know, the seller sets the price, uh, they control promotions. Uh, and the retailer is recording revenue as a percentage of the GMV that's flowing through. They gain some confidence with that supplier and then they move them to a dropship relationship. We're now in a dropship relationship. The retailer sets the price. And as a result, GMV equals revenue. So they have sort of greater top lines. Um, and then perhaps they gain even more confidence with that supplier and then they move them to the kind of third and final step, which is wholesale. We take inventory positions because we've already had months of testing of products. We know we're going to sell it. Uh, and so we might as well take a stock position and get better margins from those products. So from our perspective, we're agnostic, right? We we show up to a retailer or distributor and they say, you know, we, we've heard of marketplace. It sounds like the the future. It sounds like the answer to our prayers. And we say, well, it doesn't matter to us because the underlying problems that you're going to face, whether it's marketplace, dropship, or wholesale, are onboarding, integrating, transacting, and managing those supplier relationships. And that's what supplier enablement is all about. I know um, I know a lot of your clients um, around Shopify, and I know you've done a lot of work with Shopify. I think it's one of the two kind of main platforms you're focusing on. Um, Shopify has a number of restrictions when it comes to building out marketplaces and it feels like everyone wants to build marketplace on top of Shopify, but it's arguably not suited to that for kind of specialist businesses at the moment. How do you get around some of those limitations and what does the average Shopify X convictional uh, project look like? That's a good question. I feel like I learned some things from your extensive uh, blog post on this. so. Just want to say that that's extremely accurate and actually rare on the internet um, for people to to know about these limitations. Our experience has been that that's one advantage of using something like us, and it's not just to talk our book, but like the example you gave about queuing and how you need a certain volume of inventory updates to be flowing through. I think is very true. So in our experience, there's just a few things that I would say um, are potential limitations. Um, one would be that question of like just the volume of data that needs to flow in, although you can get your rate limits increased. That's kind of like a hot take. <laughs> um, the, the other thing I would say is uh, order splitting. So I don't think it has this notion necessarily of being able to split orders by supplier independently. It's kind of got like a customer order kind of model. Um, and so we do order splitting in that case, but maybe not in the case of, of some other platforms. Beyond those, those two things, I don't know if there's any technical barriers to um, to running marketplace programs in the case of our customers. I think there's other potentially limitations they might feel on the, the e-commerce side, um, but obviously being supplier facing, I think those are the two that really stick out when people try to build this themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think um, a lot of what you're doing essentially is taking things outside of Shopify is probably best practice when it comes to this stuff. We, we, we think um, that... We have this analogy called bridges and islands 
And, and so like Shopify is an island, it's like where you keep your business on the same page. And we have no aspiration to be that. We view ourselves as a bridge, not only to Shopify, but to other platforms. It would be very hard, I guess, to use an analogy for Shopify to connect to other platforms and for that to make sense commercially. And so we think that like the ecosystem at large needs something that's kind of Swiss and you know neutral to uh, all sides. And, and so we, we aspire to be a bridge, but part of the aspect, like the important thing to keep in mind about being a bridge is that eventually the hope is that these platforms will figure out, you know, the things needed to enable a certain use case or supply model and build those. We're kind of expecting that. So I think this is like a kind of, you know, we're getting them there by supplementing the functionality that exists with our stuff. But the hope long-term is actually that, uh, that they're able to build all this. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And I think um, as they open up the checkout a little bit more and a few other things in their roadmap should help with some of those bits. Yeah. Um, EDI. So can you just talk us through essentially what EDI is for some of our listeners, kind of the history and what the future looks like for EDI and also where Convictional plays in this space? Totally. So um, first, the history. EDI was created in the 60s to enable supply chains for airline parts. So uh, companies that assembled planes, it turned out they had so many parts, it was too hard for any given um, supply chain manager to keep it all in their head. And so they invented this system that ultimately could be sent using these private networks to communicate information about orders. So I need this product to go here at, on this day kind of thing. And, and so that data format that was standardized across supply chains then started getting adopted in other industries. So like wire transfers are EDI, health insurance claims are communicated between companies via EDI. There's still lots of applications of this technology. The way that it's used in retail is you can imagine walking into a massive retailer like Walmart that they experience the same problem, which is that there's so many SKUs on the shelf. No one person or team can really keep track of everything that needs to be reordered and the right timing for that. And so that relationship that a, a large retailer would have with their suppliers is often uh, enabled through EDI. The advantage is it's a standard language. Um, you do have to like license it. It's, it's kind of a weird thing, but the disadvantage is that say something changes about the nature of trade, it's very hard to change like a protocol level thing. So the addition of product images, for example, for e-commerce, there's no, there's no EDI document for product images, um, or certainly not any that are, that have been applied widespread. And so what we identified in working with more modern companies is that in order to sort of speak EDI and participate in this network of big companies trading things with one another, they would have to go out, buy an ERP system expressly for that purpose. And they had like a real growing business built online and were not able to speak that language. So our perspective was that, you know, for companies that were primarily enabled via EDI, they would want something that they could use to bridge into the modern, the modern context of APIs and apps. And on the other side, if you had an API or app-based platform, it didn't really make sense to go and run, you know, a second core business system just to enable EDI. We wanted something that was like a Google Translate sitting in the middle, just making it possible for you to, you know, work with companies that used it. So some of our largest customers, we hook into, you know, their enterprise systems using EDI, and then their suppliers can use systems like Shopify and others. And it, it works really well, um, but someone ultimately had to go out and build the engine to do that. So, would you do you ever describe your your platform uh, as middleware, um, or do you avoid trying to use something so specific and concrete? I think 
So middleware to me also sort of says like inside one company. So it's like, I use this to connect all my systems together. Yeah, it's sure. sort of like middleware, but for like between companies. Um, between where? Yeah, between where exactly. I like between where. <laughs> we, got a new, we got a new buzzword for the industry. I don't know. I don't know how Chris will feel, but I like it. <laughs> a new category of software, between where. <laughs> let, let, let's get, let's really confuse people why we call it composable between where just to get as many. Exactly. Yeah. It's just very simple. No, I mean, it's, that is the most accurate, I think. So it's like it, with middleware, it's like I'm connecting, you know, my e-commerce, my, my CRM system. It's like, it's the weird thing is it's crossing the bounds of companies, which interesting, it, it just compounds all those problems people have with like data normalization, yeah. because it's like, I don't even know what systems you have and what data it, it's being validated against. We kind of have to bring all of those into what we do because uh, you want it to be, you know, you want the information people are sharing to be validated at the source and identified in like a really human-friendly way and um that's actually a pretty hard problem <laughs> yeah yeah exactly thanks yeah that's that that's a nice nice explanation of why it's not specifically middleware um so i've got a question we've talked about and you've referenced marketplaces just being one of the like channels that you you work with closely how do you see businesses building business cases for this? Because it, it feels like there's an obsession now with let's all just throw up a marketplace and that will increase our sales, but it's not always that easy. So what, what is the business case? And I, I guess, you know, how, how do you help build that business case? Yeah. And, and I mean, there's sort of two different approaches depending on if you are kind of what we call a growth uh, customer or growth retailer or an enterprise retailer. Enterprise retailers tend to kind of pursue more of like a big bang approach where, you know, marketplace or dropship or even though they're already doing wholesale likely will get ratified as an initiative uh, kind of top down from the C-suite leadership team. And so then sort of, you know, typically stakeholders within digital or e-commerce will have to build a strategy and we can talk more about the pieces of that. But if we're dealing with sort of a high growth brand or retailer using something like Shopify Plus, um, you know, typically because they can get onboarded to convictional in just a couple of clicks, there's really no barrier to testing this model. But the things they're trying to optimize for in that business case primarily start with GMV growth. Um, but the the considerations there that one needs to consider are, you know, okay, if I want to grow revenue, grow sales, I can buy more ad space on my existing catalog. I can spin up, you know, another supply chain to sell more SKUs, uh, or I can partner with other vendors. And so those are kind of the options. And so if we go through each of them by process of elimination, we can rule out what seems to make sense based on what our customers want uh, and based on capital requirements that are made that might be needed in order to invest in each option. And so if you kind of go down that list of each each of the three options and you arrive at partner with third party vendors, um, the benefits of that are actually pretty pretty crazy. Um, you know, you can reduce your risk. You don't have to start by holding inventory positions on these products. Uh, you can learn what customers want based on what's actually selling. So letting customers vote with their wallet rather than throwing caution to the wind and just taking a whole bunch of inventory and hoping that you sell it. And so I think, you know, there are ways of testing this business model live that, you know, it's important for brands to understand before truly uh, investing in fully. But again, you never want to run an experiment and let poor execution be the reason for failure. And poor execution in the case of testing a marketplace model would look like, you know, having 
uh, spreadsheets for every vendor that you're managing, having a three-month onboarding time, which, by the way, is typically the average when we engage with a retailer, um, you know, not having the inventory uh, system of record from your suppliers integrated with yours so that you're overselling. Um, these are all sort of reasons for failure that proper supplier enablement with something like Convictional could solve um, so that you can validate that experiment and then hope that you grow GMV at the end of the day. And that's typically what we see our customers do. So that's how you would build the business case rationally. Yeah, makes perfect sense based on what I've seen as well. I'd love to drill into the three-month onboarding piece. So what what causes it to be so long and what for you is a realistic, I, I know there's always edge cases where there's compliance and legal frameworks and therefore it takes longer, but yeah, what what causes it to be so slow and what what is a realistic thing for a retailer to be aiming for? Yeah, so it's usually two or three months when it's the kind of spreadsheets and particular like EDI or API-based paths, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, in our case, it's 4.4 days median across every customer that we have. And it does vary. So it tends to be longer in the case of enterprise customers because of the requirement to go through legal contracting. Um, legal contracting has become the longest part, unfortunately. And so we do have in-house counsel that started to recommend to people how to simplify that part. Um, but yeah, so for us, it's 4.4 days. I think the medium when we get there is two to three months. And the components of work are primarily what you're describing, like product data setup, um, testing orders, the operational part. It, you know, you either have to set up an EDI kit connection, which takes that long, build an API integration, um, which takes that long, or do it manually. In the manual case, maybe it's faster, but it does ultimately lead to a lot of ops pain. Um, and, and then, yeah, it's other stuff like legal onboarding, like I mentioned, and, and like, you know, marketing materials, like really to, to get it from four days down to one day or like even shorter, which is our goal. There's a lot of aspects of how these relationships are formed that have to change that aren't just technology-based. It's like policy, how you view risk, contracting, marketing materials, what activation means. So in we, we, we care more about getting the seller to make money and the median for that is now under 20 days over the last couple months. So from the time you get the invite to make money, it's like under three weeks. Um, and again, like we want to get that as low as possible, but that's current state. Great. And um, as a retailer or a brand, how do I know if and when I should be looking at kind of drop shipping and supplier enablement? How do I know when it's a good opportunity for me? So I have an answer. Chris may have an answer as well. My answer is generally, you want to have a really clear understanding of who your customer is. So I think in some cases it's fully appropriate, in other cases it's fully not appropriate. What we do when we get there kind of thing is ask the most senior person that we have access to, to write down who they think their customer is and isn't, and define it clearly what they want and what they expect from them as a brand. And that comes, that turns into like a promise, right? So like Amazon's promise is wide selection, low prices, fast shipping. Every company has some kind of promise. Once the promise is clear, the modes of supplier enablement become clear. So, you know, if if their values are wide selection, maybe marketplace is more appropriate. In a lot of contexts, curation is actually more valued. In which case, it might be dropship, and there's some taste element to to how you onboard it. Um, and, and same with wholesale, it could be like fast shipping and like multiple vendors in one box, and that's just what people want and expect. So, I don't know if we have clear 
a clear universal way of qualifying that, I would just say we ask people to write down basically what is the customer promise and then back out what the appropriate supply model might be from there. One important input to this, in addition to uh, customer feedback, customer understanding, is um, just simply traffic, right? So you want a captive audience, uh, the, basically the demand side, figured out before you go and layer on a bunch of supply into your e-commerce. So we find that you know it's very important for folks to have figured out or to be working with, you know, uh, proper conversion rate optimization tools and and agencies in order to. Um, have that funnel uh, created and the traffic existing in order to successfully sell products that customers want. Um, so you kind of need to do both simultaneously, but both are uh, very important considerations. That all makes sense. Um, and in terms of like brands looking at marketplaces at the moment, it feels like this is a huge trend and people are looking at kind of, or drop shipping, you know, bringing on kind of more product from brands that have that affinity with the customer um how big have you seen this like uplift i know james and i have both had clients that have looked at um is this have you seen this as a massive trend at the moment i i think uh the the answer would be unequivocally yes um we don't do any kind of paid marketing ourselves uh and yet we seem to be getting interest uh multiple times a day from businesses of all shapes and sizes who want to pursue marketplace and dropship and we and so so our job is to kind of qualify which bucket you're in and so one of the most important questions is how deeply do you want to curate those products and that product catalogs if you want to just open the floodgates to any and all sellers and all of their products that's great maybe marketplace is more of your the business model of choice there there's not there's not much product content moderation happening on the front end uh, and if it's a drop ship, maybe you are curating your taste making to Roger's point. Um, perhaps you want to control the price and have perhaps better margins than the alternative. And so, you know, there's different trade-offs with both. Fundamentally, it comes down to who sets the price of the product of the SKU and how do you want to record revenue? Again, people come to us and often say, I've heard about marketplace. It seems like the answer to my prayers. And we typically go and ask, well, how do you want to record revenue? Do you want it to be a percentage, like a commission on the GMV? Or do you want to record it as top line GMV and set the price? And so I think we just try to, you know, kind of qualify all of the interest out there. In terms of kind of what the total addressable market is, it's really tough to say. You know, we we have we have basically tools and stuff that we use to to do this internally, but we'll get a, you know, a single brand mom and pop shop where they've created a, their own product in the garage and they've somehow amassed quite a bit of traffic and they come to us and say, you know, I'm in fashion, but I'd really love to sell accessories because it's not going to cannibalize my existing offering. And there's some great brands who could also help me co-market my existing products. How do I, how do I make all this work with my business? It's like supplier enablement is the bottleneck. Like you need to solve for getting that vendor onboarded in order to provide more assortment, more breadth to your customer. So in addition to it being, you know, that existing kind of total addressable market being like existing multi-brand retailers, why couldn't any single brand retailer also become sort of either a mini marketplace or uh, a full-blown full-scale dropship business? So the TAM is really just as fast as businesses are willing to adopt this. And we see kind of all of it happening at once right now. And, and what's next? Are you 
it's convictional branch now into additional areas of functionality or different types of commerce, or are you just focusing on in, 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 you know, increasing the capabilities around your core areas? Mm, I'd say both. So uh, we talked about, you know, the team, the team's essentially four times larger now than it was at the start of the year. So more things become possible. Uh, the way we look at it is what is the theoretical maximum state of this particular job to be done on behalf of the customer. So what is the fastest possible supplier onboarding or like most generous possible payment terms for both sides of the transaction? And then trying to build technology that addresses that. You, you can assess it in some pretty basic ways, like what's the transaction volume and the margin that both sides are taking and the like order return cancellation rate for quality. Um, but all those things being said, I think, I think what's next is a combination of enabling payments on both sides, especially enabling uh, the buyers to get longer payment terms, the sellers to get paid when they ship, uh, enabling sourcing with better recommender systems. So something we don't want is ourselves to become a marketplace. So it's always been a closed network. It's kind of like Facebook where you can't see who's friends with who. Um, and, and it's always going to be that way, but we can definitely do a better job of enabling sourcing through technology. Today, it's, it's more like email intros that we're making at increasing velocity. Uh, I think eventually that turns into a recommender system that looks at all the different elements of a particular potential partnership. So my expectations as a buyer, your ability to fill, fulfill orders as a seller and the relevance of the products that you have to our customers and services those things more automatically. So that's where we're primarily investing. Amazing. Thanks. Well, that's covered all of the key questions. Paul, did you have any, any other questions before we wrap up? I don't think so. Maybe one, actually. So I know um, from talking to Bill, you uh, are fo quite focused on Shopify and commerce tools as e-com platforms. Are there any others that you're looking at to kind of be core integration? Um, I think we want to integrate with all of them. It's just a matter of sequencing them based on where customers take us. So those those two you mentioned definitely have a lot um, of companies building you know, programs like this on top of them right now. That said, I'm not opposed to integrating with anything. Um, I, I think like part of the challenge with the way that these commerce platforms operate today is actually that they don't tend to be too friendly to integrating directly with each other. And that's something that we think we can solve for by being kind of a neutral third party in that scenario. So yeah, certainly um, a lot of platforms that we want to connect to in the near future. Nice open-ended finish. <laughs> not not turning anybody away um let, let, thanks very much uh gents you know that's a wrap on the episode uh, thanks chris and roger for taking the time to explain the role and benefits of supplier enablement it's much appreciated yeah thank you for having us we really appreciate the work that you guys do and we're excited to partner yeah excellent and thanks as always to everyone uh listening we really do appreciate it please do subscribe if you haven't so you can get updates we'd also love a rating on spotify or apple helps us feel warm on a cold winter's night so keep your ears open for the next episode and let us know of any topics or guests you'd love to see us feature. Thank you. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.